Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We are super happy to have you here with us today. We, of course, have more great guests for you. We have two today, Tony and Carrie Newhoff. Listen, we're going to talk about all kinds of things today. Tony is a family law mediator, a former divorce attorney, and co-host of the Smart Family Podcast. Carrie is a former lawyer and founding pastor of Conexus Church. He also hosts the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. They're both authors, and this is a fascinating conversation. A part of the focus for this conversation is around Tony's expertise in her book, Before You Split, Find Out What You Really Want for the Future of Your Marriage. Carrie is an eight-wing seven, and Tony is a five-wing four. We cover lots of ground in this interview, folks, so stay tuned. You're going to love it. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner, and now let me throw it to the host of Typology, Ian Cron. Carrie and Tony Newhoff, welcome to Typology. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Just thrilled to be here with you, Ian. Great to hang out, Ian. Thanks for having us. Yeah, man. I I love having friends on, especially ones that I don't get to see very often, and especially ones that have exciting things going on. Tony, you have a new book. It's titled Before You Split, Find What You Really Want for the Future of Your Marriage. It's out on Waterbook Penguin. And uh, wow, first of all, congratulations on a new book. And I'm excited to, yeah, and I'm excited to jump in to talk about an eight, five marriage (laughs) <laughs> this could be a really short podcast Ian. i think we can probably tie it up in a few minutes like i don't think we need a whole episode there's been very little drama very little drama that that combo i think was part of the genesis of this book ian <laughs> <laughs> oh oh i know <laughs> and i am gonna get to that i am gonna get to it okay All right. So we're going to talk about the book because I think it's fascinating. And uh, I also, though, want to talk about this unique relationship between an eight and a five. And uh, so I'm going to start with you, Tony. How would you describe Carrie through the lens of the Enneagram? Well, describing Carrie is uh, could take a while, but I'll try to boil it down. Um, He's very direct. Uh, He loves the truth and is a pursuer of it. Uh, He's not going to stand for any stories or, uh, you know, if there's a if there is a potential Mm. weakness in your story, he is going after it. Um, He's very loyal. The people it takes a while for someone to get in. uh, But once they're in, he is, I would say, fiercely loyal. And um what else can I say? He may come off as being aggressive in a problem solving situation because he's going to drive and drive after the solution. Um, what have I missed? I don't know. You're supposed to describe me through the lens of the Enneagram. So I think that's up to you. I mean, does drivenness, you would probably say oh, I'm very yeah, driven. And I, I think, yeah, yeah, I think there would be an undercurrent mm-hmm. of that in what I was said, mm-hmm. but yes, drivenness, a, um, you, you definitely, once you're committed to a cause, you have the vision for it. You can, um, you, you can talk about it easily and you can, you have a gift at rallying people around the cause. Hmm. 
Well, I would also say probably the command aspect, like mm. like dominant. Oh, yes. Do not <laughs> try to control Carrie. So if you really want him to grasp an idea, you need to go around it and plant the plant the seeds so that eventually it comes out as his idea. All right. So, Carrie, how would you describe Tony through the lens of the Enneagram? Yeah. The spy. I would say for me, it just made so much sense. I mean, when we read your book a few years ago when it came out and, and I mean, you know, the story I, I bought it for all my friends, because that's what I do, but it just, so many things dropped into place. So one would be uh, the hiddenness a little bit, like really um, hard to get to know, but so worth knowing. Um, you mm -hmm. have that joke that, you know, you were with your friend, Bill, who you've known for 30 years or whatever his name is. And you find out 30 years later, he has a brother and you're like, what, you have a brother? Like literally, I learned something about Tony. I can't name it right off the top of my head, but we were on a long walk a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, I did not know that about you. And we've known each other 32 years. So there's still mm -hmm. layers. Um, speed has been a big thing. You are very high capacity. You're a pharmacist and a lawyer and a mediator and a podcaster and an author. Like you've had multiple careers. You've been successful at everything that you do, but the pacing is really different. I'm kind of large and in charge and I just go at it like a bull in a china shop and you just sit there very quietly. Like you will, you'll sometimes work for six or eight hours without getting up. And I'm like, I've been up 17 times, ADD, mow the lawn, you know, mm -hmm. climb the roof, whatever, trying to generate ideas. And you're just, you're just strong and steady. Uh, you, uh, you handle conflict very differently than I do. You tend to withdraw or to stonewall. Whereas I would be like, no, we're going to, we're going to flesh this out right now. And um, you're also very rational. So I kind of think of myself as rational, but you're way more rational. And at times that, that combination of distance and rationality can, can sometimes present itself as cold. I think I don't see it that way anymore, but for years, that's, that's how I saw it in our relationship. It's like, well, you're just, you're just dispassionate and cold. And I'm like, but I care about this stuff. And so I would say that was some of the, the conflict and, and how I would see you. I mean, huge respect I have from the beginning and just tremendous capacity, but it's really interesting to see how your capacity is sort of the slow start that really gets moving over time. And then I tend to, you know, come in strong and then fade. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, <sighs> Sometimes even visually, and this is why we always uh, have people on. I, I never just do it on the phone line. I want to see people. And part of it is just seeing the two of you sitting side by side. Those of you who are not watching on YouTube uh, and are only listening, you can see the different energies. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see externally, like, like it's on the outside, the posture, uh, the uh, animation of affect on the face uh, is different. Uh you know, like right now, for example, uh, Tony, you're leaning back and Carrie, you're leaning forward. So you see. So the, true. Yeah. Yeah. So you see the aggressive, uh, you know, you're in the aggressive stance, which is uh, three sevens and eights. Tony, you're in the withdrawing stance. You're with fours, fives and nines like me. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, you 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 both really articulated beautifully some of the dynamics in the eight five uh, combo. Um, let me let me just, uh, you know, oftentimes people 
will ask me the question. I've been married 32 years. And uh, sometimes people say to me, um, tell me about your marriage. And I'll respond the same way every time. I'll go, which one? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, I'm of the belief that everybody has multiple marriages to the same person. Mm. Like, you know, at year five, maybe, or seven, or whatever it is, you realize, okay, the old contract isn't working, we got to renegotiate the contract. Uh, at year 12, or year 15, you're like, okay, it's time for the third marriage, because the script has changed, the life has changed, kids have maybe moved on, time to renegotiate, time for our third marriage, fourth marriage, fifth marriage. I think that's healthy. Um, now, if you, you know, have you had multiple marriages to each other? That's such an interesting question. Um, I would have to say I, I see it more in terms of two marriages. And and I think it's because the long lead in of the messy middle of our marriage was it felt so chaotic that it's almost like there's a before and after or mm. the the painful version and the amazing version you know and there was definitely a transition point in the middle but the um it, it seems mm. more like two versions with seasons we definitely had to go through seasons where um our roles changed you know my my leadership role at the hospital changed i took on another role in a different hospital the schedules were very different we had to you know renegotiate seasons but it feels more like two versions for us but i i totally understand what you're saying and i i resonate with that idea that there could be multiple versions you know, uh, Tony, I want to ask you a question because your book is so fascinating and I think it's so, so helpful. Um, you talk about the messy middle and I want to know what the messy middle was. Mm. <laughs> uh, how many hours do you have? <laughs> All the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carrie and I, um, we, we, we got fairly quickly into our marriage. Um, it was like 18 months from meeting each other to being married. And then it was another 18 months from our wedding day to having our first son. And we were at law school in between. So we did literally hit the ground running. And then um, Carrie went to seminary. And a, a few years after that, we ended up uh, leading some small churches uh, north of Toronto. And I was, I was a professional trained as a pharmacist. So I was working as a pharmacist. Carrie was leading the churches. We had um, two young boys and we just ended up, I think, not being able to connect with each other from different perspectives. We couldn't get into a place of emotional safety with each other. We were like, I would be the first one to put up my hand and say, I was emotionally unprepared for marriage. I I Mm. did not know. Well, I didn't connect with my own feelings, but had no idea that I wasn't. Um, Mm. But I know that, you know, I, I, I joke that I was raised by my friends and that I basically learned life just by observing what other people would do and how other people would respond. And early in my career, I heard uh, a doctor 
talk about, you know, that your patients don't care what you know, unless they know that you care. Mm -hmm. So learned that, you know, I, I need to have this appearance of connecting with pe other people's emotions. And yet I had the internal climate of, I just don't, I don't know what positive emotions are. Like I, you know, I even started my faith that way. And, and I asked mm. God that question, like, mm. you know, I'm here, I am, I'm following Christ. Where's the love? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Like, I have no idea what those feelings feel like. And so mm. we've, we had this emotional disconnection and then we just couldn't get through our differences in, you know, when we had a difference Carrie would really go hard after trying to resolve it. And I would, it, it's not that I didn't want to resolve it, but I felt like I needed space and I, I, I needed some time to process whatever the solution would be. And so we would, you know, we would really get into this pattern where I would say Carrie was being too aggressive. I would give up. I would withdraw. I would zone out, go into my own world. That would make Carrie more frustrated. So we just had this tension that was building and building um, grievances that we couldn't get past um, expectations that would clash, but we really couldn't communicate about them. And so it was literally just a messy, chaotic situation where we, I, I, I knew I was frustrated. I could connect with negative emotions, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was so hard in that space for, I think for both of us um, to, to, to get what we really wanted, mm. you know, which was that closeness that we at least experienced at the beginning, but just you, we could seem we couldn't seem to get there. Mm. Carrie, what do you want to add? Yeah, I would say the messy middle was definitely messy. Um, it was it was like it wasn't there wasn't a precipitating event. Uh, it wasn't like there was this massively bad day. We just kind of, I think like a, what we're learning as we talk about this book, what a lot of couples experience is the slow drift into disconnection. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it was skirmishes and uh, Rebecca Lyons called it the 10 year argument. I think that's very true. You know, a lot of couples have just things like money was always a tension point mm -hmm. for us in part because I left law to go into ministry, not for the money, um, but it was tight and you are a saver. And mm. in, in a good way, but there's also a lot of fear around not having enough for you, which mm. would correspond with being a five. Whereas mm. I'm an eight wing seven. So like, you know, I'm the entrepreneur. It's like, well, we'll just figure <laughs> out a way. We'll make more like we can, we can do that. And I, I also tend naturally toward being a spender. So there was that. And then mm. I tend to be more task mm -hmm. and you tend to be more relationship. So Tony would be all about the kids and I'd be about, well, looks like a bomb went off in the house. So can we please clean it up? And it, never, it didn't really look that bad, but to me, that was, that was like a thing. So yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was definitely really difficult and the arguments never got resolved. You just pick up where you left off. And you know, if, if Gottman, you talk about this in your book, but the four horsemen of the apocalypse, what is it? Contempt, defensiveness, criticism, criticism and stonewalling. Oh, thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, we definitely had all four. Uh, definitely had mm -hmm. all four. And he would say, then there's a 98, whatever percent chance you're going to divorce. And we didn't, but like, and we've been able to recover. Like, I don't, I don't feel contempt um, mm -hmm. anymore. I don't, I mean, maybe there's a moment here or there, but I mean, there was a lot of contempt in the relationship. 
And mm. we kind of hit our bottom around, we would both peg it around year 15. Years 10 to 15 were really, really difficult. And then, you know, it didn't turn around overnight. It just kept getting better. And now at year 30, almost 31 of our marriage, um, it's, it's, it's not perfect. Like, you know, we're on the side of heaven, but like, my goodness, we're having a good time. And uh, sort of all those things we had hoped for. So I would say to your earlier point, there's probably four stages. There was the initial honeymoon and like hanging out, getting to know each other, all the excitement, all the emotions are, are you know, working in the right direction. Then there was the slow slide, the bottom um, you know, into the bottom and then the gradual recovery. And now I'd say the last five, six, seven years has been, we sold to use a different metaphor. We sowed a whole bunch of new seed 15 years ago and the garden is maturing and it's, yes. it's a lot better. <laughs> I'm really glad to, first of all, hear, uh, you really have beautifully, uh, and concisely, described the dynamic in the eight five relationship i mean you, you've done a beautiful job of it and i'm really glad you survived contempt um you know gottman uh talks about this idea in fact there's a great quote from malcolm gladwell i just pulled up because i i know gottman's work and i know uh, about the, the whole danger of contempt and he says if gottman observes one or both partners in a marriage showing contempt toward the other he considers it the most important sign that a marriage is in trouble mm. yeah mm -hmm. i heard that yes. years ago and i i remember hearing it for the first time and going that's both of us you had a lot of contempt for me. I had a lot of contempt for you. And, you know, with contempt, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, but like, you know, your default shifts to negative, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. it would be like, if it was Tony's idea, it was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you probably had a similar vibe coming mm -hmm. my way that mm -hmm. if I thought about it, there had to be some fatal flaw to it. And almost like the eye roll that was happening on a regular basis, either, either externally or internally, there was kind of a lot of eye rolling. And yeah, I, by the grace of God, we got through that and, and it's, it's not really there anymore, but that, that was a deep, deep ditch to dig out of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Tony, um, you in the book write about the mud, right? And, and mm -hmm. uh, in relationships and maybe we can put it this way and please correct me if I'm wrong, but every marriage partner brings issues from the past into a marriage, right? Right. Uh, we we sort of like drag luggage along with us, uh, and we usually get married young. We're unaware of the luggage we bring in until you know we can no longer ignore it. What as a five now? What luggage did you bring into the marriage? What mud did you bring? Oh, I had no idea how much mud I was dragging into our marriage. So uh, I I do think you'll probably have more accurate thoughts on this than I will, Ian. But uh, in my childhood, I had um, a parent who was very angry uh, and ha and unfortunately had an alcohol problem. Um, so there, there were these hidden beliefs that I had that I do believe sprang out of that experience. Uh, and they were they were toxic to our marriage, but I didn't know they were there. And I didn't even get clues that they were there until I was in my early thirties. Mm. And it was a long journey of personal growth, spiritual growth to 
to try to bring that mud to the surface, so to speak. (laughs) And and I talk about it being like mud that gets hidden in seams. You know, if you wear clothing into a (laughs) mud pool, you can wash it off your arms and legs. You wash off everything that's visible, but the, the mud that's hidden away in the seams, that takes longer to expose and to Mm. clean away. So Mm. I've, I, I had this deeply embedded belief that I'm better off alone. And Mm. right now I can say nothing is further from the truth. Um, Mm. But when that hidden belief was motivating my tendency to withdraw, my tendency to let myself become socially isolated, like I had friends, Mm. but the thing is I I could easily skim in those relationships. And, and mm-hmm. when you go superficial, well, it's not really like doing life with people mm-hmm. when you stay on the surface. And, um, and I'm mm-hmm. better off alone was also attached to that tendency that, you know, I had to, uh, I had to be independent. I had to be a professional so I could support mm-hmm. myself. I had to save money. You know, we had to save money so that we had that security. It was all, all these things. Yeah, and then there were some there was some other evidences of mud too that came up. Um, things like I deserve to be invisible. Um, I'm not enough. Uh, my voice doesn't matter. And and so, you know, obviously a relationship like a marriage, an intimate marriage, just isn't going to flourish with those hidden beliefs. Uh, that were probably survival mechanisms, you know, that helped me mm-hmm. make the best of where I was at in my childhood and move forward. Um, but then really become uh, self-limiting more and more, you know, in a marriage and as you go through life. No, you've just so beautifully, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't even have to prompt you to describe <laughs> what a five is like, you know, and, you know because you, you're, you're just spelling it out for me, man. And I, yeah. I just want all fives to hear, for example, these, mm-hmm. and, and all types to hear this. Number one, all of us have hidden beliefs mm-hmm. that are underneath the surface of our lives mm-hmm. that, you know, unconsciously, it's they live outside our awareness that govern how we live and we don't even know that these are operative in the background we just you know kind of live as you know with these things autonomously running you know Mm -hmm. and so when i hear you say i'm better off alone Mm -hmm. i can just see the five child you know developing that mind particularly you know in in some ways you know your type is a response to trauma Mm -hmm. and so you know when you describe that i'm hearing you know, the alcoholic, unpredictable parent that uh, could feel engulfing and overwhelming, a a five child begins to escape into the inner sanctum of the mind in order to get away. You're describing the minimalism of the five, the need to save, the desire, Mm -hmm. the deep desire for self-sufficiency, like I need to take care of myself, almost like no one else is. So I'm going to have to jump in here, make Mm -hmm. sure the world is a safe place because fear is always in the the interior atmosphere of the five as it is for sixes and sevens. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've done a beautiful job of this. And I I just want to encourage everybody listening. Listen, you have have to 
Mm. Uh, either in therapy, through studying the Enneagram, because it does a beautiful job of surfacing these hidden beliefs. It's like the Enneagram can save you time because it's like it will articulate for you what typically in your type are the hidden beliefs that, and as you mentioned, self-limiting beliefs that may mm. have helped you as a kid. All that stuff helped you as a kid to yes. survive, but in adulthood began to work against you. So. Carrie, I want to ask you a question. What mud did you bring into this relationship as an eight? Oh, quite a bit. I was a very happy single man. I had no conflict. So uh, <laughs> I can't get into a relationship. It's like, oh, another human being who's different than me. Well, this is, right. this is interesting. No, I brought in quite a bit. Um, definitely, Tony would retreat into relationship. I would retreat into work. So early on, uh, we moved a lot as a kid. My dad, you know, immigrants, that kind of stuff, new jobs, new opportunities. And I, I don't fault them for it at all. But I, I remember, I think we'd moved five times in elementary school before I hit the third grade or fourth grade. And so it's always new friends. And I remember getting into the fifth grade and thinking, I know we're going to move again. I'm not making any more friends. Mm -hmm. And um, we didn't move after that. <laughs> but, you know, in my mind, the decision was made up. So I've always struggled a little bit relationally, particularly with intimacy, with, with, with people getting too close to me, um, which I think is characteristic of an eight. Um, I had also learned that if I performed well, that things went better. And so I became a performance addict as a kid. You know, you bring home that good report card, you, you end up succeeding. So there's sort of that drive for success. And, you know, I was raised in a, in a loving home. There were no addictions in the home, uh, raised in the church. And, but, you know, we get these things tripped up. And so in my mind, performance equals love. So it's like, mm -hmm. well, how much more can I do? So when things went bad at home and we started to slide into that place, I just threw myself into work, uh, which in that case was ministry in that season, because, you know, I found if I worked more hours, we reached more people and we became the fastest growing and one of the largest churches in our denomination in the country. And, you know, and, and then, so it was, it was one of those things where paradoxically for me, there was respect at work, there was success at work, there was measurable progress at work. And then I would come home and things might be a little bit chaotic. There was some stonewalling, there was some conflicts, some disagreement, and uh, I would just throw myself into more work. So, so that's, that's how, some of that junk would materialize. So I, I think, you know, deep down, I have a fear of rejection. I have a fear of intimacy. Uh, and so for me, it's been three decades of learning that, mm. oh, the right people are safe and you can be loved and you can be known and you won't always be rejected or hurt or, or that kind of thing. And, you know, and I think some of that too goes back to being uh, ginger, being redheaded. I was picked on as a kid. I was one of the taller kids in my class. I'm 6'2", but I, I, was, I was tall fast. So I always got picked for sports teams. I'm not an athlete. Um, so it was always that disappointment of like being picked and this kids, they should know it's only 30 people in your class. Like after a while, you should have a reputation. He's tall, but he's actually not good. But, you know, never feeling like I could really you know, catch a ball in the outfield or sink a basket or that kind of thing. So I think a lot of that was created fear in me. I've never really talked about that, but um, just being tall, they assume you're good and I wasn't. And so there was always that fear of people, fear of rejection. That's 
probably okay next therapy session there we go <laughs> but i like i remember being in the outfield and just being terrified of the ball being hit to me thinking i wouldn't be able to catch it stuff like that you have a lot of three story in your eightness uh it'd be worth maybe you know exploring at some point because you're both aggressive types threes and eights mm -hmm. uh, and there can be you know sometimes a mistype but you the story you just told is is in many ways very three-ish i'm not mm -hmm. saying you're not an eight really? but just yeah, yeah. I, I, there's a lot of three stuff going on there so let me ask you I don't want to go down the road because we're talking about the two of us, but maybe you and I could someday have a conversation about yeah, maybe I'm a three. A lot of my friends thought I was a three and then, and then people around me discovered the book before I did. And like Sarah and Justin, who I've worked with for, well, since they were teenagers, are like, oh, you're an eight. And you, yeah, yeah, you're an eight. Cause I have that dominant mm -hmm. aggressive, but you're right. There's a lot of perfectionism in me or not, but that performer aspect. Yes. Uh, yeah. You were describing the, and you were describing almost uh, in perfect language often what a three is uh, like and the unconscious motivation. But I don't want to run down that road today because okay. I really want yep. to get, get, I want to jump into marriage. I want to jump into Tony's book and, uh, you know, unpack that uh, a little bit. Um, one of the things, Tony, that you mentioned, and then I think actually it's interesting, Carrie, because as you were talking, there were two moments that I just happened to note. Uh, what I would call uh, a sadness pause. Hmm. There were two moments uh, on your face and in your tone when I could tell that a feeling was coming up. Um, hmm. I think one was when uh, you, you were describing, I will never uh, make friends again. You know, that moment when that, that is can, a sad moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you could see it on you, like the energy on your face and your body. And then there was another moment a little bit later on uh, as you were talking. And this goes actually, actually to something that Tony said and that I picked up on too, which is as you face these hidden beliefs, these stories that uh, we, we tell ourselves and others about who we are and how the world works, that part of the journey to healing is grief. Mm. That it's, it's, you, can't, you can't skip grief. Uh, because grieving an old muddy message and so that you can move on is you, you got to go through it, not around it. And, uh, uh, I, I picked that up in you, Tony, when you were talking about the message, I'm better off alone. Mm -hmm. Well, when you mentioned the grief, Ian, it brings me back to a day that, is stands out as a marker for me in my healing journey. Um, so, and it was surprising, a complete surprise to me um, because Carrie and a couple of our friends uh, decided that we were gonna go on this conference weekend mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. And at the time I was working, was very busy um, on the leadership team at one of our local hospitals. And so I, I said, okay, I'm going, but it put zero thought into it whatsoever. So we show up at this conference and it is, it's actually an inner healing conference uh, that Derry, uh, Dr. Terry Wardle was leading. And he started talking about his own story of how he experienced trauma as a child and, and the effects of the trauma and the wounds and how he went through the healing process. And I literally sat in the front row at this conference in a room of a hundred or so people. And I cried through the entire day. 
and I, it, it, it blindsided me. Um, but it's, it was such a, like what you're saying is so, so true that in order for me to start to heal, I've, I had to grieve those losses. And I didn't, mm. it came up out of my body. It was nothing. It wasn't like, mm. oh, I think I'm going to heal the effects of my trauma. Oh no. <laughs> it just, it rose up out of my body. And there was, mm. I mean, I wanted to sink into the floor that day. <laughs> right. I did and not want to be sitting at the, at the front of that it's class. I mean, as a five, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, fives do not like it when unexpected emotions arise that mm -hmm. that uh, that threaten to overwhelm them. Usually, they'll hear something like uh, that, uh, say, elicits grief or any other many other feelings, and they want to get home into private and process them alone. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. it comes up though in the moment and they can't stop it, like a five gets a little freaked out. You know, me as a four, bring it. <laughs> you know, I can cry in the moment, you know? So Tony, Anthony, what do you want to say? Yeah, I just wanted to say, what was that like for you as a five, four, you describe it as emotions coming up, uh, like from within, as opposed to, you know, kind of coming through the mind. What was that like for you as a five? Like I would say, like sadness wasn't a foreign emotion for me, but mm -hmm. but this grief was just so all encompassing. Uh, I it's just like it took hold over all of me. Mm -hmm. I had no control over. Mm. I could not. You know, many times I can actually hold back tears. Like I've become pretty good at that because I tend to, even when I'm joyful, I tend to cry. I don't like to cry all the time. So I've I've actually, <laughs> for better or for worse, I, I have that skill of being able to stop myself from crying. Yeah, um, but uh, in this case, um, it was it was. Uh, there was no stopping it. Uh, I, I, I could have fallen in, fallen through the floor, but you know, that wasn't an option. Finally, I just had to surrender myself to it and, and just go, okay, there must be a reason I need to be here today. And I'm, you know, I'm surrendering myself to it. Was there a gift that you got from that, that now as a five, looking back on that, it gave you different perspective. Oh, it was a, an amazing gift. Like that, mm -hmm. that weekend, that conference um, was one of the markers. It was one of the um, times when, uh, mm. you know, love started to become real to me. Mm. And these, uh, you know, that hidden, those hidden lies started to become exposed. Mm. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this is a good message for everybody, um, but particularly for fives today, mm. I would say to, to not, to try not to reflexively uh, shy away from feeling, but 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 be, look for opportunities where uh, feeling can arise spontaneously in settings like that, and uh, and uh, let it do its work on you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like let grief do have its way with you. Let joy have its way with you. Don't be afraid in the moment of actually expressing those feelings versus delaying them mm -hmm. until some future moment. You know when it's safer in private to kind of process mentally process the feeling. Just actually have it. You know. Now, uh, Tony, I want to jump into you. I mean, you're a family 
law mediator. You're a former divorce attorney. So this gives you a lot of street cred to write a book, right? Uh, about, <laughs> you know, uh, about, I mean, about marriage. I mean, you've seen, you, mm. yeah. I mean, so to, to write a book, split. I mean, this is, you know, you got some insight. I just want to know, you talk about seven core issues that tend to take marriages out. And, and if you could just briefly kind of like, just tell us what they are, maybe pick one or two and just, you know, kind of tell us what those are and how people can deal with them. Mm. Well, I think I would start with uh, the whole issue of blame. You know, I think when we're when couples are in a tough place in their marriage, they tend to have this sincere belief that, well, it's it's all my spouse's fault, or if they won't say all, it's it's mainly my spouse's fault, and mm. most people won't go as far as saying like, oh, I'm perfect, uh, you know, I don't have any faults, but you know, they'll give lip service to that, but then it's really mainly my my spouse's fault. And I think when, when we're saying that or believing it, even if we're not saying it, there is a hidden victim narrative going on under the surface uh, that, you know, it, it attaches to, it, it can be many different victim stories, but um, essentially holding on to a victim story is like putting on glasses that are wrong for you. You know, all you can see are blurry images if the prescription's wrong. And, uh, and that's what happens uh, when uh, with that victim story, I'm not taking personal responsibility for myself. I have a tendency to let myself off the hook. I have a tendency to become more rigid. And most importantly, it prevents me from searching out and owning my own part in what's going on. Mm. Um, so like, just for example, when Carrie and I were really struggling with uh, conflict, you know, and I would say uh, that I'm the defender of the peace. Like I'm the victim here of Carrie's drivenness, mm. his aggressiveness when we're trying to resolve something and I'm just trying to keep the peace. Um, but, but meanwhile, you know, if you get underneath my victim story, no, I'm actually disengaging. Uh, there's there are times when I'm actually stonewalling, and so that whole victim story and blame dynamic is mm -hmm. really something I encourage people to pay attention to. You know, you might need prayer, reflection, counseling, um, advice from someone close to you who can help expose your blind spots. Um, but it's so important to get underneath that, uh, that hidden victim narrative. Hey everybody, one of the lessons I've learned over the years is that not everybody benefits from a traditional 50-minute counseling session. And this is why some people can go to couples therapy or personal counseling for a long time and never really get anywhere. This is why I'm such a believer of intensive counseling and my friends at Restoring the Soul in Colorado, created by my longtime friend Michael Cusick to help couples or individuals experience deep change and 
half day blocks over one or two weeks. Now listen, if you can't wait months or years to get to the bottom of an issue or to experience breakthrough, you need to get in touch with my friend Michael and his extraordinary team of counselors at Restoring the Soul. If you're looking to get out of the rut you're in, but can't wait months or years, call Restoring the Soul today for a free consultation with Michael's staff. Call 303-932-9777 and learn how their intensive counseling process can help you. As a special bonus, just for Typology listeners, make sure to visit www.restoringthesoul.com slash typology to download their PDF called Five Ways Unaddressed Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationships. All right, so blame the hidden victim narrative. Just, um, can you just name those uh, seven uh, sort of threats or things that can uh, pull the rug out from under a marriage? And you don't need to go into detail. Just tell us what they are. Sure. Okay. Um, So not being aware of the effects of trauma, like the mud Mm. you've brought into your marriage, uh, clashing expectations, not being able to bring them to the forefront and deal with them. Uh, Emotional disconnection, you know, not staying close, not creating an emotionally safe place in your Mm. marriage. Uh, Dysfunctional conflict, you know, you're fighting, but you're fighting for me instead of fighting for we. Mm. Um, Forgiveness is a big thing. It prevents, uh, it, well, well, it keeps you apart. If you have, uh, if you're not having conversations about how you're hurting each other, uh, then you're probably building up a wall of grievances that is, is really holding you apart. And when you get to a bad place in your marriage, trust is also an issue. And so I write about, uh, I tell people, don't play it safe. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, someone needs to go first to break this dynamic. And I liken it to leadership qualities. So somebody needs to be tenacious, take the risk, take the first step and start changing the atmosphere, sowing seeds Mm -hmm. of love, uh, be the first one to apologize, you know, lay down, lay down the arms and the verbal bombs and let's set a different tone. Uh, So I think that covers it, Ian. I haven't been counting. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's great. One or two things because we we sure. would. Uh, this is these are stub points in the book, but uh, you know we had lots of discussions about should this be a book or whatever. But one of the things that really surprised me because I never did family law, divorce law, was I thought one of your great insights was beware the cheerleaders. Like what happens is if things are not going well between Tony and me, I've got my best friend, and my best friend is like, well, you need to ditch her. You could do so much better without her and you saw that in your office right. all the time yeah. with like you know you go girl get rid of him like there's all kinds mm-hmm. of guys that would treat you so much better and you know if you're in a really toxic situation um you you may have to leave at some point but like for a lot of it the grass is always greener and then um really surprising stuff so what i've based on what tony has learned in her uh family law practice is people will say to me, well, I think we're just going to divorce. It's just too hard. And I'm like, listen, and, and nobody, you know this, right? Nobody ever has ministry for or money for counseling. Like nobody ever has money for that. It's like, well, if you think counseling is expensive, divorce is way more expensive. And do you know that when it comes to custody, like I didn't even know this, but they'll, they'll subpoena your texts to each other. 
to see what kind of tone there is as evidence to see whether you're a fit parent or not. And it's like, so you right. think this is messy right now? Like you just get to the other side of splitting and it is, it is way more complicated. So, you know, and obviously all the stories are anonymized, et cetera, and people's um, identity is protected in the book and, and in, even in your private conversation. But when you actually see what's at stake on the other side of splitting, it's like, man, yeah. I'm really glad that we were able to work through some of that stuff. And not that it's fatal if, if you don't, but um, it's just, it's so easy to imagine a better alternative that is actually equally or, or more complicated. Yeah. By the way, uh, people who are watching me, you'll, you'll notice a lot of times I'm looking down and I'm looking to the side and you know, I always, I always worry people think I'm looking at, at texts, but actually I'm, I'm scurrying through notes and ideas that are coming up. But when you were saying how friends, you know, uh, are cheerleaders, I was thinking about a lyric by a great Nashville songwriter. His name is Travis Meadows. And uh, in this song uh, called Learning How to Live Alone, he has this great line. He says, my old friends don't come around. We all choose sides when the ship goes down. And, uh, and he's writing about, you know, a, a You're divorce. Right, because you know? at, at a decade, we had a couple friends for the most part. And yes. you're right. Even your friendship set changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to, I got to close up here, but um, I just want to ask one last question, Tony. And I bet you people are thinking of it. At what point do you advise a couple to get divorced? When mm -hmm. you look at it and you say, you know what? I wish this book would work for you but it is just not going to, and it'd be best for the two of you to split. I try to describe that, Ian. It's really hard to describe, especially, you know, I am a pharmacist by training and I'm a lawyer, so I don't have the insight and training that a therapist has. Um, but when I'm trying to draw the distinction between, you know, where do you need to draw the line? I, I talk about a harmful marriage. And so if there's toxic behavior, if there, if there are destructive things going on, if there's violence, um, then you need to be in separate residences, like at least that you need to at least separate. And then you maybe from there you figure out, you know, can healing happen? Is it possible? Are, are you motivated? Um, but safety is so, so important. And earlier on, when I said victim story, I wasn't talking about a victim, you know, in the criminal law sense of the matter, you know, I was talking about in terms of taking on the posture of a victim, um, you know, in a blame and shame game. Um, but, but when couples are in a place where they're just they're just inflicting pain on each other. If there's, uh, you know, if, if malice is a part of it, then something needs to happen because you need to set the family on a path toward healing, not, you know, keep it together and make things worse. Um, so where exactly that line is, I can't say for sure. But if if you're listening and you're wondering, like if you are asking yourself, am I in an un unhappy marriage where maybe like Carrie and I, there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of hard feelings, maybe there's contempt, but it was mutual. And, mm -hmm. and really, we weren't 
unsafe for each other. It's just that we were embroiled in this conflict and we were stuck and we didn't know how to get out. But by the grace of God, we did get out. Um, but that's different from a, a harmful marriage. If you're asking the question, I, I would encourage you to reach out to someone and don't try to figure it out on your own, but talk to your pastor, talk to your counselor or therapist, uh, talk to a doctor, but talk to someone because I really want you to figure out where you stand. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so glad you said that because I've only advised couples a few times. I, you know, normally I say, look, this is your decision. I will walk with you through it. But I, I you know, that's the that's usually what I will do. But sometimes in in therapy, I have said to people, enough. Like you, this is not working. We we've got, we've we've tried as hard as we can here. And people are suffering. Your children are suffering. Your friends are mm -hmm. suffering. And, you know, we're faced with two bad options here, but splitting is the better of two bad options. And, mm -hmm. you know, one, of course, is violence. Uh, the second one could be, uh, you know, a an addiction, a long lasting addiction without, you know, any kind of uh, healing. You know what I mean? Like it's just mm -hmm. going too long. Uh, yes. it could be repeated unfaithfulness that, that shows no sign of ending, mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. Uh, it may be a, a, a personality disorder that has is so embedded and creating so much havoc that right. you can just tell yourself, this will not change. This is not going to change, you know? Yeah. Uh, yes. and so again, I mean, I think, you know, I, we want to encourage people to work as hard as we can on marriages, but we all acknowledge that there are times yeah. Uh, that we're out on the tails of relationships. There are people out on the tails and those tails, sometimes it's like, this is a drag, but you know, this is going to cause a lot less harm than, than if, if I remain, you know, and it's mm -hmm. always very hard to figure yes. it out. So, just so people hey, know, none of those four factors you listed were a factor in our relationship. It wasn't a violent right, relationship. Right, there right, was no affair. Right. There was no addiction. There was no personality disorder. Uh, one thing that was interesting, though, is you said almost every couple that you've met with one way or the other over the years would say there was emotional abuse uh, in the mm -hmm. relationship, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is, I think I disagree with this person can sometimes the way we use language. So it's so nuanced. That's why I think local counsel is so important. People who know you care about you and who are objective enough to tell you the truth. Right. Well, you all, thank you for two things, uh, at least today. One is for beautifully describing what it's like to be your types. Uh, secondly, uh, what the dynamic in your marriage has been like. So instructive. Uh, Tony, I'm so excited uh, about your, your new book. Before mm -hmm. you split, find what you really want for the future of your marriage out uh, now on Waterbrook Random House, uh, Penguin Random House, I should say. And, um, you know, also, uh, for helping us just talk in general for all types about marriage, you know, uh, because obviously what you've learned is not limited to an eight and a, a, a five, right? right. Uh, and uh, so I'm so excited for you. Uh, people can learn more about you at TonyNewhoff.com, T-O-N-I-N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F, the easiest name in the world to spell. TonyNewhoff.com. And anything else? Oh, and obviously at TonyNewhoff.com on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Uh, yeah. I'm so excited for this stage in your journey. Uh, Carrie, you have been on the show before. I'm going to be on your show uh, very soon. And, um, you know, 
obviously people can get to know uh, all about what's happening with you at carrynewhoff.com and that's c a r e y uh newhoff n i e u w h o f dot very good with that so, last name you know it takes about six months on average for people <laughs> hey, 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 man, really I, was an english, I was an english major that stuff sticks oh, to there, me. You go. there you go you know i can't add 18 and 37 in less than an hour but i sure can get uh, <laughs> spelling down pretty fast hey i love you both so much hey, thanks for we love you you made a hey, huge difference yes. to our personal lives mm -hmm. and also to our leadership so. but just thank you thank you so much well, for what you do anthony ian thank you Thank, well, you. thank you. Now, normally I sign off with the words of the great Oscar Wilde, but this morning, Anthony, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to end with one of the prayers that I'm learning to say, mm -hmm. or the, a blessing. Mm -hmm. I'm learning to say, even as I walk around the mall and see people and just sort of say it, you know, to the, the world as a whole, which is, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, mm -hmm. and may you have rest. Mm -hmm. We are so thankful for you, Typology Tribe. We will be back with you next week.